Welcome back to the California Work Comp Report. This week, we're giving you part two of our interview with workers' compensation applicant attorney, Jason Wells. If you missed part one of our interview with Jason, please make sure to check it out. Part one will be linked in the description wherever you're listening to this podcast. So how do the attorneys get paid in the California workers' compensation system? This is a really simple question to answer. We get paid at the end of the case. Sometimes people refer to that as a contingency fee. That's a fancy way of saying I get paid at the end of the case. Mm-hmm. And we get 15% of any permanent disability. Mm-hmm. And I'm not going to go through and explain all the benefits. But basically, it's the benefit that pays you for your for the permanent disability that you've acquired. So for instance, I could lift 100 pounds before I can only, I can only lift 50 now. That that's that that will get assigned a certain number, and yes. then I get fifteen percent of whatever that number is. Now, technically, in the work comp system, the old forms will have a range. We call it a disclosure statement that our mm-hmm. clients sign. That's required by the Workers Comp Appeals Board. It it says nine from t- nine to twelve percent, but it's a form that's probably forty years old. Um, and a lot of attorneys now are charging fifteen percent at most boards and judges are approving that and some attorneys in LA are getting 18 to 21%. So that may vary. Ultimately, whatever is charged has to be approved by a workers' compensation judge, meaning it doesn't matter if my client agrees to it a contract to pay me 15%. At the end of the case, I don't get paid that until the judge approves not only a settlement that we've come to, they've also approved my fee. Right, right, right. And I mean, that's that's a sensible sort of accountability, I believe. Um, at least it seems like that. The... Yeah, I don't think it's really needed. Um, other than if you've got dishonest lawyers out there, and I like to think we don't have those, but I'm sure they're <laughs> out there. But yeah, I mean, I, I judges... At the bottom line is judges know... If the judges know an attorney and you have a reputation... Yeah. They're, they're not going to scrutinize the settlement or your fee yeah. as much as somebody that they may not know. But it is technically a workers' compensation judge's job to look at those issues before fees are awarded and or settlements are approved. Right, 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 right. What, um, what is the biggest legal failing in the workers' compensation settlement system? I don't know if this is a big question or not, but, uh, but I'm throwing, throwing, that one at, throwing that one out there. Oh, the biggest settlement failure. Well, okay. I'm going to answer this question by addressing another issue that we have in the system that eventually leads into this problem and then there's a second area in settlement that i want to address that is a real problem um, and involves medicare but the first one is when we're doing lump sum settlements the biggest failing is i i think the values that that the carriers and the payers are putting on these claims and and i i don't say that with criticism they're they're accountants. Mm-hmm. I, I, my undergrad's an accountant. So when I say bean counter, I, mm-hmm. I don't mean it to be a, a, a mean thing because sure. that would make me a bean counter. I kind of yeah. am. I look at numbers. Yeah. Um, the bean counters are going to look at 
what's being paid and what's going to be spent. And, and so now we jump back and go, well, why is that? Well, it's because we have utilization review. And that since 2013 and SB 863, everything has changed in the system that where utilization review and IMR, which is, which is appeal of, of utilization review, has complete control of medical care. And what that's done is that sort of put payers in a position on a case where they say, well, we're just not going to give you value for the case. So I think that's a big failing. Now, yeah. that has saved costs in the system and certainly trying to see things from the other side from business owners, because I'm a business owner. Yeah. Um, I can understand that that makes sense. And I will tell you that a lot of good defense attorneys and good carriers will still negotiate in good faith. However, there are there are the bad actors out there, like we have in all professions and all businesses that yeah. will use that and not get a lump sum. Now, can I really say that's a failing though? No, because workers comp is a benefit delivery system, meaning I can't make the carrier do a lump sum settlement they can't make my client do it, nor can a judge do it to either one. So really a lump sum settlement is not something that um, is required in the system to call it a failing. But the reality is in a lot of cases, lump sum settlements are the best, best things for both sides. It's just the rub is for how much we settle these cases for. Right. So that's, that's a big one, but you know, I'm sure you all on prior podcasts have talked at nauseum the frustration of UR and IMR. Has it served positive and done good in the system? Yes. But it's also caused a lot of problems because it's my belief it needs some tweaking. Uh, I don't think you need to get rid of it totally, but it, it definitely needs to be tweaked. Right. The second failing in the work comp settlement system is Medicare. Now, I'll give you an example. I have a case recently, very highly disabled individual, and in workers' comp, if you do a lump sum settlement when somebody is of Medicare age or is on Medicare because they're on Social Security disability, you have to do something called a Medicare set-aside trust. And you basically, it's a medical estimate. They estimate what medical is going to be for the, for the life of the injured worker. And then that estimate is sent to Medicare and Medicare says, this is enough, um, it's not enough or it's too much. And sometimes they just rubber stamp it, is my right. belief. Right. Well, I had a case recently where somebody who's highly disabled, the Medicare set aside came back at $20,000 for the rest of his life. And he's an older gentleman, but you know, it's yeah. crazy. Uh, it's yeah, a crazy I mean, amount. Yeah, it's, um, it's, it's peanuts compared so, to you know what's ahead of them. The problem is Medicare already reviewed it. I was never given an opportunity to look at. So I guess one of the biggest failings in the system is how we interact with Medicare and how applicants attorneys like me really work hard to protect injured workers' rights when there's Medicare. What I mean by that is Sometimes you just have to walk away from a lump sum settlement, even if your client really wants it. Because as I tell my clients, 
I know you want to be done with this in your mind. And lump sum is the only way to do that. But if you want to take this deal, and you're the boss ultimately, but if yeah. you want to take this deal, you're going to, you could potentially jeopardize your Medicare rights for everything else that you need it for. And a lot of my clients have other health problems. So that's another big failing. I don't think we in the system are doing a good job. And I, it's getting worse because now carriers are doing what we call non-submit evidence-based MSAs, Medicare set-asides, where mm -hmm. they are saying to us, we are not going to submit it to CMS. And I, my opinion on that, with a few exceptions, a rare case, mm -hmm. just say no. Because um, if Medicare doesn't look at it and you have an evidence-based MSA, that's going to be a major failing in the settlement because you might get a phone call from your client years later saying, what happened to my Medicare? Why am I having this problem? One final question for you for this, for this, pod, for this episode of the podcast. How... And why are QME and AME used in treatment and settlement? Why, why are QMEs and AMEs used in treatment and settlement? Well, first, I want to clarify something. Uh, QMEs and AMEs are no longer, well, directly have any impact on treatment as far as the law is concerned. Now, on a practical standpoint, certainly mm -hmm. a QME, especially an AME, can mm -hmm. comment on what they think needs to be done on the treatment front, but really is no power. Ultimately, power lies with URIMR. So if a treating physician says they need a referral to a surgeon and they go to a surgeon, the surgeon says, I believe they need a back fusion and UR denies it, IMR upholds it. Even if the QMA AME says, I believe they need a back fusion, from a practical standpoint, that can maybe help yeah. But it's not a, a legal argument where you can go back to a judge and say, hey, IMR was wrong. They have no, QME AMEs have no power over treatment, just, just to be clear. Now, they do have power over, obviously, future medical care. So if you're trying to settle a case, like we discussed, lump sum cases, their comment on treatment can be important. So really what QME AMEs are used for at this point is impairment ratings, um, addressing body parts that may be still denied, and addressing ability to return to work. Now, obviously, a, a treating physician can do that in a, what we call a PR4, mm -hmm. which, is a, which is a treating physician med, med legal report. But that's really their only function at this point in the system, just... I mean, there's a lot of other things they do, but just on a practical day-to-day -day sense, that's really what they're addressing because the system has taken away a lot of power over treatment. And, and like I said, an SB863 removed that power from QMEs and AMEs entirely. It used to be that if UR said no, you could go to a QME, AME, and if they disagreed, then it overrode UR. Um, right. That's no longer the case. So... Right. Um, you know, I, that's really all they do is address impairment. Now, again, we can dig into the weeds of what that looks like. but As, as we have on the podcast many times. <laughs> I mean, we could, if you would like. Yeah, okay. Well, so impairment ratings. This is something that... Um, that RateFast does, first off. <laughs> well, and I'm... And I, I, I'm... 
I'm very aggressive with the Paramount ratings, um, admittedly. Um, I'm very much a believer in, in Alvarez Guzman. And I'm not just saying that because I'm an applicant attorney that's trying to make my settlement bigger. Right, right. I, I'm, I'm talking from a fairness standpoint because the AMA guides just do, do not address impairment. And I, and, and I, I don't want to get too much in the weeds other than to give an example that I give all the time when I've taught impairment and particularly Almarez Guzman at other like seminars and stuff. One of the things I say is one, the AMA guides oftentimes only considers anatomic loss and not functional loss. And my example to that is how the guides are sometimes not fair is I can have somebody who has a back surgery who has a great result. And the guides say that the low back, they fit into a DRA3, 10 to 13%. That's where they go. They had the surgery, they get it, they're, they're there. Then I can have somebody that has a back surgery, even the similar operation and the operation doesn't go well. And they end up with they end up with drop foot, or they end up with a whole bunch of host of ADL impact. So the first person, you know, they're pretty much the same as before. They're doing very well. Mm-hmm. The second person can barely walk. Yeah. They can't lift anything. They can't push or pull. They can, I mean, their their life has changed. And so some doctors that I've talked to or in depot will say, well, they get a 13%. And I'm like, okay, doctor, so you're going to give them a 3% swing when this person is so different. So obviously coming from the perspective of an applicant attorney and somebody that's very aggressive in ratings, I'm going to, I'm going to go for more and I'm going to use that case law, which is codified. It's, it's in the labor code um, to try to get my client more. Now, does that make, do you do that in every single case? No, I'm just saying that, you know, injured workers, you know, you can't fit them, you can't fit a square peg into a round hole. And unfortunately, that's what the book does. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I mean, that's, that's, that's what we're using for now, too. So, so it's uh, kind of necessary to, to observe these things. So, well, <clears throat> Jason, thank you so much for coming on today and, and answering these questions uh, and that we've split up into multiple different parts. Uh, thank you for coming back and we hope to have you back on the show soon. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening. For more about Jason and his practice, visit wellswellslaw.com. And to learn more about Reefast Workers' Compensation Impairment Report Service, visit our blog at blog.rate-fast.com or visit our website at rate-fast.com.